Huntsville, Alabama at the Becoming Church. Pastor Michael and Katie, um, thank you for your friendship. And um, Becoming Church, thank you for your support and what we get to do at Georgia State with coaches and athletes there. I'm, I'm just uh, thrilled to be here and to be able to, to bring a word. But I want to tell you just a little bit. I think I brought some pictures with me of um, what we got going on at Georgia State. Are there any Georgia State alumni connection in the house? Come on. Let's go, Panthers. Come on. So, so this is what we got going on. And um, we meet every Wednesday night and just love on these student athletes and teach them the word of God and walk uh, with them through. I think I got one more picture next, yeah? And um, as you can see in that first picture, we had a bunch of ladies, and then it kind of warped, and now the guys are outnumbering the girls most nights. But um, I love what I get to do and getting to be able to support the athletic program at Georgia State University with a gospel mission in mind. How many of y'all know this world is crazy? Yeah. How many of y'all know that Atlanta is crazy? All right. All right. So if you get a young person uh, going to college, moving to a city like Atlanta, you know, it's not like Auburn, small town. You can get a little bit of trouble here and there. You can find some trouble in Atlanta. So, um, so I'm thrilled for the opportunity that I have with FCA. I want to pray and then I'm going to jump right on into the word here. Is that okay? God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity that I have to be here. Thank you for Pastor Michael and Pastor Katie and for this generous house called the Becoming Church. What you're doing here is miraculous. And I pray that you would continue to bless this house so that this house can be a blessing to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen. I want to start off with a uh, passage from Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And it gives the account um, of what's happening after Jesus was born. And it says this, And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And they saw the star and they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. What a great response to King Jesus. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Amen. So two things I'm going to do today, and you know it's going to get real when a preacher brings a sweat rag in the house, all right? So, um, no, really, 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 I'm going to preach, and I'm going to sweat a little bit. Promise I'm not having a medical emergency. My adrenaline just gets going. I get excited, and and um, I, just, I just love this. But I, I love this account right here of these wise men coming to where Jesus and Mary and Joseph were, and they brought him gifts. What an awesome response to a Savior, that they're acknowledging that he is Messiah and Savior, and they're following God's leading by a star to where Jesus was. And the Bible tells us that they brought him gifts. How many of y'all like to give gifts? Anybody is a gift giver? Yeah, I met a gift giver today. Thank you so much for that pound cake. Um, I'm going to enjoy that. You know, I, I, like to, I like to give gifts, but I love to receive gifts. So I'm like on fire today. How many of y'all are receivers? You like to receive gifts? Yeah, that, that's me. I, I love to receive a good gift. But sometimes, you know, during the holidays and birthdays and whatnot, you, you get a, um, 
a gift that's not very practical, you know? Like somebody will give you, like, like they're going to say to you, like, like here, here's a book, you know, I hope you enjoy To Kill a Mockingbird uh, for Christmas. Merry Christmas. Want to bless. Like, okay, appreciate it. And there's this thing, too, where you can actually purchase, like, decorative books and put on your bookshelf. I think, what an what a odd thing if someone were to give me a gift of decorative, like, they're not real books, but they just kind of look classy and go on your bookshelf and take up space. Hey, if that's your thing, go for it. I, I love that for you. But I'm thinking for myself, hey, okay. Um, but, but there are impractical gifts um, that, can, that can be interesting. And then there are also practical gifts where you're like, man, I can use this every day for the rest of my life. And you get super grateful for that gift. And when you look at the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, I'm thinking to myself, like, I, I love that, and, and it sounds wonderful, but, but what is baby Jesus going to do with the gold? What's baby Jesus going to do with the frankincense? And, and what is he going to do with the myrrh? And I'm just saying I'm not a baby expert uh, by, by any means, by any stretch of the imagination. But what I do know is that I'm, if I'm going to a baby birth party or whatever you call that, um, I'm probably not going to bring gold, frankincense, or myrrh. I'm probably going to bring like a diaper or a wipe or a blanket or a, a pacifier or, or something. I'm thinking practically, you know, of just what I would bring to a baby birth party. And um, there, there's this interesting thing that maybe some of y'all use. Have y'all heard of the, the, uh, the snot sucker? You know, you got the old school ones where if your baby has a stuffy nose, you stay in there. It's, it's gross either way. But, but this, I would think, is a practical gift where you can give a mom this and put it in the baby's nose. And to get the, the snot out, you put the other end in your, yeah. Practical gift. I, I guess somebody said it works. I, I, it makes me gag just thinking about it. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure about the, the snot sucker. But, but if I'm going to, like, bring a gift to the baby's birth, I'm going to think of something practical. And I don't know what the baby would do with gold, frankincense, or myrrh. The gifts that the magi or wise men brought to Jesus don't make sense to us today for a baby's birth. But back then, they actually were uh, luxurious gifts. And they were practical gifts. But even furthermore, I believe that they are prophetic in a sense. The gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. These gifts were a foreshadow of who Jesus is and what his birth represents. That the gold actually represents the kingship of Jesus. And I have it up here for us. The gold represents the kingship of Jesus, and the myrrh represents Jesus' servanthood, and the frankincense represents Jesus being our high priest. That Jesus is king, that Jesus is our suffering servant, and that Jesus is also our high priest. And today, I really want to focus on, what I really wanted to do uh, on my own was go through each of those and just take a minute, bullet here, bullet there. But, but I really just kept coming back to the frankincense piece of Jesus being our high priest. Frankincense comes from a tree that's um, known in the Middle East, the Boswelli tree. 
And it possesses so many different things that you can use with frankincense. I don't know if anybody in here is into essential oils and stuff like that, but you probably know more about frankincense than I do. But um, if that's your thing, then you're going to love this part right here. But it's, it can be an antiseptic. It can be a sedative, a digestive. There's so many unique properties that frankincense brings that maybe isn't as popular today because we have modern medication, modern medication, but back then they didn't have all that, so they had to take out of these natural things what they could for medicinal purposes. So the gift of frankincense is actually a practical gift that the mother, Mary, would have been like, oh, I can actually use this if my baby's getting sick. I can, you know, I don't know how you would get all of that out of it, but however that's done, I can do that and give it to baby Jesus. So Mary was probably super pumped about the frankincense. So this was a practical, very expensive, luxurious gift that was multi-purposeful, that could treat illnesses and wounds. And in the Old Testament and in that time, the priests would actually burn frankincense as an incense that would represent a fragrant offering going to God as our prayers rise up to heaven. That's what the smoke represents, represent from burning the frankincense. So the frankincense is a representation of the priestly nature of Jesus, that Jesus is our high priest. And that word and that phrase priest may not be relevant to many of us depending on our background um, when it comes to denominations or when it comes to maybe having a Catholic background, but we don't use that word priest in a lot of Protestant settings, but Jesus is our high priest, and I want to share with us just what the biblical definition and description of priest is. In the Old Testament of the Bible, the priest represented the people to God. The priest would represent the people to God. The priest made sacrifices to God for the forgiveness of sins. The priests prayed prayers to God on behalf of the people. The priests were like representatives. And since the moment of Adam and Eve's first sin, since that original sin, there has been two opposing forces in the world. And that is the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God that there had become a separation when that original sin took place, that there is the fallenness and the brokenness of mankind, and then there is the holiness and the purity of God. That sin isn't a popular topic anymore because nobody wants to be told what to do. Amen? Like whenever somebody comes at us with rules and what we can and cannot do, and hey, you're doing that wrong, we kind of get defensive and buck up a little bit. But there is a sin issue and a broken issue within all of us, within humanity. But, but the issue now is that we ask the question, who are you to say what I can and cannot do? If it feels good, then I should be free to do it. I just want to live my own truth. Sin 
seems to be an outdated concept just to get people to behave and to do the right thing, to get kids to behave and to do the right thing. Why do we need to address sin when we can just have Elf on the Shelf? Amen? Anybody do Elf on the Shelf in their household and just, I love it. I don't have kids, but I think it's cute when I see the pictures on Instagram. And I'm like, man, look look at what their Elf is doing today. Like, super creative. A lot of time on your hand, but, um, but, 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 but who, who needs to address sin when you have Santa Claus, when you have the naughty and nice list, and you can just threaten your kids in that kind of way? So why do we need to talk about sin anymore? But here's the thing. If we don't understand the holiness of God, then we will have a casual approach to sin. If we don't understand the holiness of God, then we will have a casual approach to sin. Merry Christmas. All right, I promise you this is going to lighten up and it'll be, it'll be great. But we got to address something instead. Let's talk about the holiness of God just for a few minutes. All right, so the Greek word for holiness is agois, which means to be set apart, to be transcendently separate, to be perfect, to be flawless, to be pure. Everybody say pure. That God is holy. Holiness is one of God's attributes. But the truth of the matter is that holiness isn't just one of God's attributes, but holiness is the adjective that describes all of God's attributes. Because he's holy in all of his ways. That his knowledge is holy. Amen? That his presence is holy. That God's power is holy. That his goodness is holy. That his love, that his grace, that his mercy, all of that is holy. His compassion is holy. His patience is holy. His truth is holy. His faithfulness, his justice, everything about God is holy. And here's the thing. If God never did a thing for us, If he never sent his son Jesus to die for our sin, he is still worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. Why? Because he is holy. Because he's a holy God. His holiness is what makes him worthy of praise. Yes, God is great. Yes, God is good. But God is holy. That he's pure that he's perfect, that he is completely whole. There's nothing broken in him. His holiness alone makes him worthy of all the praise and all the worship. Revelation 4 tells us that the angels in heaven circle around him and they all cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. The Bible tells us that the elders cast their crowns before his throne. Why? Because he's holy. And they say, worthy are you, Lord. Worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. And by you, all things exist and were created. God is holy. Everybody say holy. That's who our God is. He's a holy God. Psalms 8, verse 4 and 5 says this. What is man, what is humanity, that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. Here's the thing. God is holy, and we are not. 
but he chooses to have relationship with us. He chooses to speak with us. He chooses to dwell among us. He chooses to make salvation available to us. God is pure, he's perfect, and we are not. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23 goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. But God made a way for us to have relationship with him and have salvation from death available through his son, Jesus. We have all gone astray. Everybody say astray. We have all gone astray. We have all fallen short. We have all sinned. And the truth of the matter is that God hates sin. He hates all sin, and the holiness of God opposes the sinfulness of man. The holiness of God opposes the sinfulness of man, and the sinfulness of humanity opposes the holiness of God. But God had a solution for all of that. This is where we can smile, amen? God had a solution for all of that. In the Old Testament and still in Jewish tradition, there is the Day of Atonement. And this was when the priest made sacrifice once a year, but it was a temporary payment. That they would sacrifice an innocent animal for the payment of the sins of the people. But it would be temporary and he would have to do it time after time, time and time again. The priest would sacrifice an innocent animal, go into the tabernacle behind the veil, into a place called the Holy of Holies. And the priest would then light the frankincense and the incense would burn, letting the smoke rise as representation of the prayers and the cries of the people rising to God, asking for mercy. And the priest would then sprinkle the blood from that innocent animal onto the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies that symbolized the death of an innocent one. And in the place of the guilty, the innocent one paid the price for the sins of mankind, of the people. So the priests would make that sacrifice. They would take more than likely a goat after that. And this is where the term scapegoat comes from. And the priests would confess the sins of the people onto that goat, symbolically transferring their sins onto the animal. Then he would drive out that goat into the wilderness, away from the community, and even sometimes off of a cliff. How many of y'all know that that is weird? That, that, that's just, just cruel. That it's just inhumane. That it's just awful. Like, like you read some things in the Bible and you're like, my gosh, um, like, 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 why is that even there? Why was this even necessary? So the first animal died, paying for the price of sin. Then the scapegoat was driven out of the community, symbolizing that the sins had been separated from the people of God so that the sins would be removed and forgiven. This whole process was not only weird, but I consider it to be scary, all right? Like, if I lived in that day and time, I don't know what would happen to me because I just don't think that I could take it. I'd be like, man, not, not the lamb. Like, we name the lamb. Like, like people are like, don't name f- farmers or like, don't name the animals because you're going to 
eat them. But, but I'm like, I, I love the animal. I don't want to kill the animal. I don't want my transgression. I don't want my sin to go unto the animal. And the animal have to pay the price for me. Like, that's just simply unfair, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's horrible. But that's what Jesus did for us. That's what he did for us. The whole process seems unfair. It's gross. And then the worst part is it was only temporary. So it had to be done time and time again. And what Jesus did for us, dying on the cross, being tortured, our sins being placed on him, it was inhumane. It was weird. It was scary. It was awful. It was all of those things, but he did it for us. Why? Because God is just, and sin must be punished. God is just, and sin must be punished. But, everybody say but. Not only is God just, but he is also merciful. And in the Old Testament, sacrifices that satisfy God's justice temporarily, but what Jesus did for us satisfied his justice for all time, that salvation is available for all of us. The price was paid, but by somebody else. It was temporary in the Old Testament, but now Jesus comes onto the scene, and we're under the new covenant. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. It says, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all time. Everybody say all time. Then verse 11 says this. Under the covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for our sin, good for all time. Like, thank you, Jesus. Like, thank you, Jesus. He didn't have to do it, but he did. And we're grateful for it. Jesus is not a public figure or a distant savior who feels sorry for us. But he is the son of God, our high priest, who knows and understands us and cares about what we are going through. That he is our personal savior. Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And in the King James Version, it says it like this. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. How many of us know that we have some infirmities within us? That we have some imperfections within us? That, that we are a broken people, but God came down to earth through his son, Jesus Christ, to dwell amongst us. 
to know us, to know what it's like to be tempted, to know what it's like to be stressed out, to know what it's like to experience loss, to know what it's like to experience disappointment, to know what it's like to have crazy family members, amen, that Jesus knows what we're going through. That we don't have a Savior who is distant. We don't have a Savior who is just looking at us saying, man, it sucks to be them. But we have a Savior who has experienced every single thing that we have experienced. And he has grace and mercy for us. And though he was tempted in every single way that we have all been tempted, the Bible tells us that he did not sin. And that's why he was the one who could only, could only be our ultimate sacrifice. Because he was tempted, yet he did not sin. And God placed our sin, the sin of all time, the sin of all mankind, onto Jesus. So that ultimate sacrifice could happen for us to experience salvation and have right relationship with God. John 1.14 says this. And the word became flesh, talking about Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. Everybody say grace. Everybody say truth. That he's full of grace and he's full of truth. God understands what we're going through. At this very moment, maybe you're in the room, you're saying, I am stressed out. He understands that. Maybe you're in the room and you're saying, I've experienced great loss. He understands that. Maybe you're in the room today and you're saying, I've experienced great disappointment. I'm experiencing these strained relationships. God understands that because he made the choice to dwell among us. Jesus was conceived out of wedlock to a teenage mom in a small traditional town. He grew up being the product of scandal and he was gossiped about. He lived in poor conditions. He was judged, criticized, ridiculed, bullied. He was tempted by the devil time and time again, the people, people who were close to him died. People who were close to him betrayed him. He was wrongfully accused. And worst of all, he came to a point to where he felt abandoned by God, his father. When he was saying, why have you forsaken me? He felt abandoned by God. What you feel, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ felt the same way. What you're going through, our Lord and Savior Christ, Savior Jesus Christ has been through it. He understands. He knows what you're feeling. He's not sitting in heaven just looking and judging us, but he understands. And the Bible says that, that Jesus is actually praying for us, that he's interceding to the Father on our behalf. And he's saying, I know that that hurts. I know that that's stressful. 
I know that that's difficult and that's hard, and he's interceding to the Father on our behalf. He is our high priest. Thank you, Lord. Hebrews 4.16 says this, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, for we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Because of what Jesus did for us, we can go to God the Father ourselves. That we don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through a pastor. We don't have to go through a family member or somebody who's been a Christian a long time. But we can go to God for ourselves boldly to the throne of grace because of what Jesus did for us. Because of his sacrifice, we can come to God ourselves. We don't have to approach God formally and with big words with the king's English and, and have all of our theology in line. We can come to God just as we are because of what Jesus did for us. We don't have to use big words. We don't have to use a certain language. We don't have to approach God with formality, but we can come to him boldly. We don't have to cower down before God. Somebody may say, man, I can't go to church. You know, the church would burn down if I came. No, because of what Jesus did, the church doors are wide open, welcoming you, saying that you belong here, saying welcome home, saying there is a place for you in the house of God, that you can contribute something, that you can come with all of your imperfections. All of us can come with all of our imperfections, with all of our insecurities, with all of our hurt, and with all of our pain, and come to the house of God boldly and say, here I I am God. I need you. I need you. And he doesn't turn us away. And as a reflection of who Jesus is, the church doesn't turn you away. Maybe you've experienced some church hurt. Maybe you've experienced some, some, some pain through the people of God. But guess what? That's not the, the heart of the Father. He's saying, welcome home. He's saying, come into the house of God with your crazy self with your strong out self. He says, come to the house of God. There's a place for you, and there is something that you can do to contribute to the house of God. Thank you, Jesus. The song said that he is for you. I come to tell you today that he is for you, that he's waiting for you with open arms, that, that, that when the prodigal son came home, the father wasn't sitting on the back porch and he didn't send his servant out to kick him away. No, he was waiting on the front porch. And he said, I think I see my son. And he ran towards him. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what mistakes that you may have made. But the moment that you turn towards God, guess what? He's running after you. And the Bible says that his grace and his mercy is going to follow you every day of your life. You may say, well, that's harassment. God is harassing you. He's saying, come home, come home, come home. He's a good God. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God. He's a good father who loves to speak to us, who loves to listen to us. He's a welcoming God. And we can go to him at any time and at any place. In your darkest moment, when you're in a place where you know you shouldn't be, 
God's there. And he's saying, hey, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I have something better for you. Jesus is our high priest. And that means that we don't have to have anyone to represent us, to bring our needs and our behalf. We can go to God ourselves. The Bible says, describes him as an omnipresent God. That he is everywhere all at the same time. The Bible says that we can call him Emmanuel because he is God with us. And today I want to encourage you and say that he is God with you. He is God with me, full of sin, full of brokenness, full of shame, full of all of that. He's still with us, and he's saying, I can take all of that away and give you a new life.